There we go. Okay, good morning. Uh, we're glad to, uh, to have you here. Our numbers are a little down, but uh, we'll see who joins us along the way. Uh, okay, good. Thank you for being proactive. There are handouts here at the, at the front uh, as well. I think everybody has one. Anyone? Does, anyone, does everyone have one? Okay. Um, let me just pray, and then we'll hand it over to, uh, to talk. Father, thank you for today, and Lord, uh, we come to you, and we pray that you would uh, strengthen our faith, enrich us, and deepen our uh, thinking about you through uh, this time here this morning. Pray for uh, Tawa, that you would uh, give him uh, the right things to say, uh, give him uh, energy uh, to, uh, to do all that he uh, has uh, planned for this morning. We pray that... Uh, uh, you would bless him and bless us through this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I don't think Tawa needs any introduction. He's a familiar friend with us. So thank you for coming, and uh, we look forward to what you have to share with us today. Okay, thank okay. you. All right, I think you can hear me, yeah? I'm going to talk from down here because this way, you know, we can all see each other. If you wanted, if you could just squeeze into the middle a little bit, that way my, my field of vision. You don't have to, but, but it would be great. It would help, be helpful for me if you did. Um, this is the third summer that I've had the privilege of spending a weekend with you here at BCBC, and we really are honored. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be able to come and to share some, some thoughts with you and to interact with your questions and your comments and your insights. Um, I always learn a lot when I get to be here, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful for Pastor Donald, Pastor Gilbert, uh, Wee Guan is here, and Chris Chang and Cindy So for facilitating um, my presence here, and very thankful for our good friends Aaron and his wife Yolanda for opening their home and letting my very rambunctious family of five invade their quiet lives for a long weekend every summer. So very thankful to be here and very thankful that you've taken a Saturday morning to come out and to be able to engage in conversation together. Now, last summer when I was here in, in one of our, our talks, we worked through reasons to believe that God exists. You know, one of the the skeptical challenges to Christian belief is that there's really no good reason to believe that God exists. Just like there's no good reason to believe that Thor exists or the Tooth Fairy, so there's no good reasons to believe that God exists. And so we worked through what we call theistic arguments, um, reasons, evidence to believe that God exists. And we looked at four families of theistic arguments, cosmological, ontological, fine-tuning, and moral arguments. Um, in our sessions this morning, I want to kind of build upon what we did last summer. So we're going to assume those arguments. We're going to say, okay, so there is good reason to believe that some sort of God exists. Now, what can we say about the nature of that God? Uh, because the skeptical challenges to Christianity don't stop at just the existence of God. It's also the character, the nature of God that comes under some challenge. Um, I have given you a handout uh, that's partly... Uh, I find when I have handouts, I have an easier time staying awake when somebody else is talking, so I'm hopeful that it'll be helpful for you, and uh, also something for you to be able to take uh, with you at the end. Hopefully, there'll be something that is helpful for everybody here this morning. So we want to turn our focus to the question of the nature of God. What is God like? Uh, I think that we can look at the world around us, things that are available to all people, and we can come to a rational conclusion that God exists. But when it comes to understanding the nature of the God whom we worship, we're not now just looking at nature around us, evidence that's available to everybody. Rather, we need to turn to what God has revealed about himself to us in his word. So to understand the character and the nature of the God that we worship, 
we need to turn to Scripture, to the Bible. So our emphasis this morning is going to be a philosophical examination of what the Bible says about the nature of God. And in particular, we're going to focus on two of the proclaimed attributes of God and assess their philosophical coherence. Okay, so we're going to look at the nature of God and ask, does this make sense? Can we rationally affirm what the Bible says about God? We're going to look at omnipotence and omniscience in particular, but we're going to set things up a little bit before we get there. So in doing so, we delve into the area known as philosophical theology, which is a rational examination of God's attributes. Okay, so philosophical theology. Philosophy, again, is seeking to apply kind of critical tools of clear thinking to the big questions of life. Theology is the study of God. So here we're applying these rational examination tools to God's attributes. There's two primary reasons I want to go down this road. First, and I'll talk about this a little bit more in the next session, um, a clear understanding of God's nature is essential to having a proper love for and relationship with God. We cannot love that or he whom we do not know. We cannot know that which we do not understand. So we should strive to understand the God whom we worship, love, and serve. And second, again, many critics of Christianity argue that some of God's attributes are either logically incoherent or intrinsically undesirable. That is, they are bad. This is not a good God that we worship, but rather there's something wrong with God. So I think it's important to work with the coherence and the goodness of God's nature. There's going to be three basic sections to this first little workshop. First, I want to look in general at the nature of philosophical theology, the rational examination of God's attributes. Second, we want to look at the attribute of omnipotence. And we're going to answer the cheeky question, can God create a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it? Now, how many of you have heard that question somewhere at some point in time? Can God create a rock so heavy he cannot lift it? All right, so we're going to look at that question a little bit together, okay? And then third in the last section, we're going to examine God's omniscience, responding to the concern that if God knows all future events, then that would somehow negate human freedom and or responsibility and accountability. So first, let's look at philosophical theology, the relationship between faith and reason. So philosophical theology is a rational examination of what Christians claim to be true about God. Now, at first glance, for many people, it would seem that this kind of a process is somehow a sacrilegious, that there's something wrong with doing this. Wouldn't it be a sign of intellectual pride if we're rationally examining the nature of God? Aren't we supposed to just accept what Scripture tells us about God and not ask questions about it? Wouldn't philosophical theology fuel a rebellious attitude? towards God? Wouldn't it be kind of walking in the footsteps of Satan? And so for some Christians, subjecting faith to rational examination is an unhealthy exercise. The true believer, they say, doesn't ask rational questions of their faith. We just believe and that's enough. So when I served in Edmonton, I had privilege of serving at the University of Alberta part-time as Baptist student minister. And so we would have students who would come and just want to talk about their faith and about questions they had about their faith. And again, I think I've shared this here before, but frequently I would have a student talk for an hour, hour and a half, and usually not even a student from my home church, ECBC, uh, but they would just want to come and talk, and they knew that they could come and talk and ask questions. And at the end of a long conversation, they would say, thank you. And I would say, well, thank you for what? Say, thank you for listening. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't I listen? And then frequently I would hear this. I tried to ask these questions of my pastor or of my parents, and they told me I shouldn't have questions like this. Right, that I should just believe. And so for some, 
it's, it should be enough to just believe, to not ask the tough questions of our faith. But in fact, the Bible itself encourages us to ask questions, to examine our faith. Psalm 119, verse 140. Your promises have been thoroughly tested. That is why I love them so much. Malachi 3.10, we are encouraged to test the Lord and see his blessings. Isaiah 1.18, come and reason together. Come, let us reason together, the Lord says. In Acts 17, the Bereans are said to be of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Why? Because they examined what Paul was saying about God to see whether it was true. God grants us rational faculties. He creates us in his image, and a part of his image within us is this ability to think through, to rationally examine, to critically examine the things that we believe about him. And he grants us these rational faculties and desires for us to use them in our pursuit of him and his truth. Now, certainly it is true, and this is where the concern comes from. It is true that we can ask the questions and we can rationally examine our faith in a very unhealthy way, with a rebellious attitude, an attitude that says, I'm not going to accept unless or I'm not going to believe unless, or I want to find reasons not to believe. So yes, we can do it with the wrong attitude, but that doesn't mean that the process itself is bad or unhealthy. After all, we should be able to acknowledge that virtually everything can be used in the wrong way. Okay? Food, sexuality, money, all of these things, they're not inherently bad but they can be used in rebellious ways. They can be applied in rebellious ways. So the same thing is true, I think, of the rational examination of faith. It can be used rebelliously, but that doesn't make it an unhealthy thing. So it's best, I think, to emulate the great African theologian, St. Augustine of Hippo, who in the 4th century set forth a vision of faith-seeking understanding that I try to follow today. But, yeah, I'm not as wise as St. Augustine, don't get me wrong. But Augustine notes that God encourages us to test our faith to pursue divine truth and to never shy away from asking the tough questions of the Christian faith. But Augustine always seeks to ask those questions and to examine his Christian doctrines from a position of a prayerful faith and submission to the Holy Spirit. Augustine asks God to guide him into truth, but he never shies away from exploring his doubts, from entertaining the objections of his anti-Christian critics. Faith-seeking understanding. I think it's a worthy model for us to emulate as we subject our Christianity to critical, rational examination, applying the truth tests that we can. Now, I also think that some, uh, so some of these students that I had that would come, their, their pastors, their parents would say, you shouldn't have these questions, don't ask these questions. Part of what sometimes I think fueled that feeling was a fear of what people would discover if they were to rationally examine their faith. Namely, I think that there are some lay Christians and Christian leaders out there that think that if you apply the tests of reason to Christian faith, that you'll find it not to be true. That is the unspoken fear, or sometimes the spoken fear. Applying reason to faith will lead you to think that your faith is not true. If this is the case, if this is really how we feel, that if we examine Christianity, we'll find it to be rationally lacking, we'll find it to be untrue, well, we should probably just quit now. Right? After all, we worship a God who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? God says he is truth, that a pursuit of truth will lead to him, not away from him. So if we're afraid that pursuing truth will lead us away from God, we're really saying that I don't think God is who he said he is. I don't think God has the truth, 
is the truth that he says he has and is. So I think it's fair and I think it's important to pursue truth in a rational examination of our faith. And as we do so, there's four categories I want to talk about. These are enunciated by Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century um, philosopher and theologian. And I think these are helpful to keep in mind as we move forward, not just in this session, but throughout this whole weekend together. So four categories of relationships between faith and truth to keep in mind. The first is truths that are demonstrated by reason or truths that are demonstrable by reason. So sometimes, Aquinas says, rational examination and investigation can bring us to Christian truths. So, for example, last summer we talked about the existence of God. I think that is a truth that is demonstrated or demonstrable by reason. We can look at creation around us. We can look at the world around us. We can look at just purely rational arguments like the ontological argument, and we can come to the conclusion, demonstrated by reason, I think, that there is some sort of divine being that we call God. I think that's a truth demonstrated by reason. I think the historical reliability of the New Testament Gospels is a truth demonstrated by reason. We can apply just the tools of historical inquiry and come to the conclusion that, yes, the New Testament is historically reliable. So these are examples of truths that are demonstrated by reason, okay? Truths of Christianity that are demonstrated by reason. The second category is truths that are consistent with reason, okay? Now, rational examination cannot establish these doctrines as being clearly true, but it can demonstrate that the truth claims are consistent with the reasons and the evidence that we have. So, for example, the truth that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead is a truth that is consistent with reason, Okay? The doctrine that the Israelites came out of Egypt and into the promised land is a truth that's consistent with reason. There is some supporting evidence for it, but not strong enough to be able to say that it's demonstrated by reason. So truths demonstrated by reason, truths consistent with reason. The third category is truths that are transcendent to reason, or as Aquinas puts it, truths above reason. And this for Aquinas is the key category in Christianity. These truths are not something that you can arrive at by looking at physical evidence or rational examination. You need God's revelation for them. You need his word for them. However, they are above reason, but they are not contrary to reason. That is, they're not logically incoherent. They're not irrational, but they are above reason. So, for example, for Aquinas, one of the key ones here is God's triune nature, the Trinitarian nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, this is a truth that we could never arrive at just by application of pure reason or examining the evidence. We need God's revelation, but this is not a truth that is contrary to reason. So we're going to look at that one in our next session this morning, God's trying in nature. The fourth category, he says, would be truths that are contrary to reason. And here, Aquinas says, we arrive at a void category. That is, nothing exists in this category. There is no such thing as a truth that is contrary to reason. A truth that is contrary to reason would say that it is logically incoherent. To say it's logically incoherent is the same as to say it's logically impossible. If it's logically impossible, it cannot be actual. If it cannot be actual, then it cannot be true. Therefore, Aquinas says, there is nothing in this category. There are no truths that are contrary to reason. Truths that are above reason, yes. That we cannot fully comprehend, yes. But truths that are clearly against reason, he says, no. Nothing contrary to or against reason can be true. But some Christian beliefs are accused of being contrary to reason. Again, God's triune nature is one of the key ones. That's why we're going to look at it shortly. 
God and evil is another. So the Christian understanding of God begins with this affirmation that the truths that we know about God can be arrived at via reason, they can be consistent with reason, they can be above reason, but they will not be contrary to reason. Now, as we dive into an exploration of God's omnipotence and omniscience, we have to keep one other warning in mind. And both Aquinas and Augustine give us this warning. God is transcendent. God is above us. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Right? My ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is transcendent. God is God, and we are not. We are finite. We are fallen. We are fallible human creatures. We will never be able to fully comprehend God. In other words, there will always be a mysterious element to the nature of God, a part of His character that we cannot fully understand. When that ceases to be true, when we fully understand God, we can be confident that we are no longer worshipping the God of the Bible, but rather we have created a God in our own image instead. If we fully understand God, that means we've created God. Okay? The God who exists, who is transcendent to the universe and everything in it, is always going to be something that we cannot fully grasp. But again, while God's nature may not be fully comprehensible to us, it will never be irrational to us. Again, Aquinas was fond of saying, divine revealed truths may be above reason, but never contrary to reason. So God may be more than we can puzzle out, but he will not be logically incoherent. This is an essential distinction for us to keep in mind. All right, so then when we talk about the nature, the character, the attributes of God, we're looking at a very, very massive subject, right? We're looking at his attributes, his characteristics, love, wrath, justice, mercy, knowledge, power, goodness, presence. We're looking at all of these things. In philosophical theology, we we narrow our focus to um, divine attributes that we can look at through the lenses of philosophical investigation. And we tend to focus on the the nature of God's uh, triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we're going to turn to in the next session. And then we focus our attention on what we call the omni, God's omni characteristics, omnipotence, omnipresence, omnibenevolence, and omnipotence. Okay, so we look at the omnis and we subject them to philosophical investigation. Now, the prefix omni simply means all or maximal. So our conversation then focuses upon God possessing all power, all goodness, all knowledge, and all presence. Okay? Now, it's very uncontroversial to, con- to proclaim that Christianity believes that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and all-good. Okay? Everybody, whether they're Christian or not, affirms that Christians believe these things about God, that the God whom Christianity worships is omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, and omnipresent. The question is, and for some non-Christians, the accusation is that these attributes don't make sense, that they are irrational. Part of the reason that we're going to focus on them. Now, a Christian worldview holds that these are non-negotiable elements of God's reality. So, if the nature of God's omnipotence is irrational, then that means that the God whom we worship can't exist. Okay? So that's how the criticism goes. If, even if we have reason to believe that there is some sort of a God, if we say God is omnipotent, but omnipotence doesn't make sense, then God can't be omnipotent and the God whom we worship doesn't exist. Does that follow? Okay. So, God is omnipotent. Very uncontroversial claim that, uh, that everybody would agree that Christianity holds God is omnipotent. But what does that mean? What does it mean to say that God is omnipotent? Okay, there's three primary possibilities. I've got them, well, you have to fill in the blanks, but I've got them in the handout. 
And each of these possibilities have been held by numerous Christian thinkers. Um, I think there is one best place to land. That's not going to surprise you. I have an opinion about everything. It's one of my character flaws. Uh, but there, there are three kind of traditional perspectives. The simplest, most straightforward one, probably the one that is most commonly held, is that God can do all things. Okay? That omnipotence means the power to do absolutely anything. So to possess all power means to have the ability to do all things. And so this is where the cheeky question comes in, right? When I became a Christian back in 1993, uh, some of my, my thoughtful friends, my good friends that I'd been hanging out with for years and years, began to question my newfound faith. And so one of the ways that we questioned it was by asking this cheeky question. And so the questioning would go something like this. Okay, so you believe in God now, right? I, yeah. Okay, so you believe that God is like all-powerful, right? Like, yeah. So if God is all-powerful, God can do all things, right? And I'm like, well... Yeah. So, can God create a rock so heavy he can't lift it? At which I became very puzzled. As, again, a 17-year-old, brand new Christian, untrained in any sort of philosophical theology, and here I'm thinking, okay, can God create a rock so heavy he can't lift it? Well, there's two possible answers to the question, right? It seems that way. What are the two possible answers? Yes and no. Well, if I say yes, what am I saying? I'm saying, yes, God can create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it. If that's the case, then there's something that God cannot do. Namely, lift this super heavy rock, right? But if there's something that God cannot do, then God cannot do all things. And if God cannot do all things, then, the way I was thinking, that means God is not all-powerful, omnipotent. Oh, but if God's not omnipotent, then God is not who I say God is. So this is a problem, right? So if I answer the question, yes, God is not omnipotent. What if I answer the question, no, then what am I saying about God? I'm saying God can't create this super heavy rock. If I say God can't create a rock, cannot create a rock so heavy he can't lift it, then I'm saying there is something that God cannot do, namely create this super heavy rock, right? Again, the outcome becomes the same, right? What is the outcome? God does not possess all power. God is not omnipotent. So this, this, this very simple and kind of cheeky question, and I love cheeky questions. Okay, When I call it cheeky, that's not a derogatory term. I love cheeky questions. They're very good. We're going to ask a very cheeky question tomorrow morning in the English worship service, so if you, and it's a good cheeky question. Okay, So this was a very perplexing question for me. I didn't know how to answer it. And for years I didn't know how to answer it. Can God create a rock so heavy he can't lift it? So I just hope nobody would ask it. Sweep it under the carpet and then we don't have to worry about it. Right? But the question is out there. Either way you answer that question, it seems, with the traditional understanding of divine omnipotence, God is actually not omnipotent. There's something he cannot do. Right? So, and it, it, look, this, this traditional notion of God's omnipotence isn't just challenged by that cheeky question. There's other questions, too. It struggles to deal with things like God's ability to make square circles. Can God create a square circle? A squircle, I call it. Okay? Well, either yes or no. Right? Can God sin? Can God do evil? Can God create a world in which he doesn't exist? These are a family of questions that challenge the traditional understanding of divine omnipotence. It seems that there's no way to answer those questions without coming out with God being unable to do something. So it leads to a second way of understanding divine omnipotence. And this one again comes from Thomas Aquinas, that 13th century Christian philosopher. And Aquinas says, omnipotence means the power to do anything that is logically possible. So it's not the ability to do all things. 
It's the ability to do all that is logically possible. Anything that does not imply a contradiction, a logically impossible task, like making a square circle, does not count. Why? Because he says it simply doesn't exist. Aquinas calls it a pseudo-task. Okay? So the task of creating a square circle. So try it. You've, got a, you've all got a handout, right? Try to make a square circle. Can you do it? No. Why not? Because there is no such thing. It's an impossible task, a logically impossible task. And so Aquinas says it's a pseudo-task. It's a fake task. Pseudo-P-S-E-U-D-O. Right? It's not a real thing. It's not a real task at all. Can an omnipotent being create something that an omnipotent being cannot lift? He says that's a logically impossible task. Can God sin? Can a perfect being do something that a perfect being would never do? Aquinas says that's a pseudo-task. That's a logically impossible thing. And so, no, God can't do that, but that's not a limit on God's omnipotence. Here are some other pseudo-tasks. How many of you are hockey fans? Any hockey fans? Any? No, a couple? Okay. Well, can a goalie... Okay, so if God is playing net for the, the Vancouver Canucks, okay, God forbid, but if God's playing goal for the Vancouver Canucks, can he have a safe percentage of greater than 1,000? No, why not? Exactly, you can't save more than everything, right? So he can't have a safe percentage greater than 1,000. If he's playing forward, if, he, if he's, you know, some Edmonton hockey fans are calling him Connor McJesus, very blasphemous, don't do that kind of thing, right? But if God is playing center for the Edmonton Oilers, can his shooting percentage be greater than 100%? No. Okay, why? Because it's a logically impossible task. And even an omnipotent being can't do that which is logically impossible because the logically impossible simply doesn't exist. Okay? If you're a baseball fan, think of this. Can God have an ERA better than zero? No. Can he have a batting average greater than a thousand? No. There are maximal limits to these kinds of abilities, right? That is, there's a maximal limit beyond which you cannot go, no matter how powerful you are. Okay? Increasing power to the point of omnipotence doesn't somehow give you an ability to do that which is logically impossible. So Aquinas argues that omnipotence means the ability to do everything that is logically possible. So we need to define the all things by saying it's all things that are logically possible. An, quote, inability to do the logically impossible does not compromise omnipotence. It simply means that God is possessing all power that can be possessed, and all power that can be possessed is the ability to do that which is logically possible. Okay. Now, a third group, so that, that's Aquinas' perspective, okay? Omnipotence is the ability to do all that is logically possible. A third perspective wants to delineate it a little bit further. Um, so, for example, um, is it logically possible to do wrong? How many of you have ever done wrong? Anybody? Anybody ever sinned? Okay, I've sinned, you've sinned, we've all sinned, right? So is it logically possible to sin? Yes. So... Can God sin? Well, it's logically possible, right? So can God sin? Well, some, and here the 20th century philosopher Richard Swinburne argues, well, no, God cannot sin. Why can God not sin? Because if God were to sin, God would no longer be a perfect being. He would no longer be holy. He would no longer be sinless. Jesus would no longer be able to redeem us, right? So God cannot sin. 
But sin is logically possible because we do it, right? We can't make a square circle, so we can't expect God to make a square circle, right? We can't make a rock that's impossible to lift, so we can't expect God to make a rock that's impossible to lift. But we can sin, so shouldn't God be able to sin? So Swinburne wants to refine the thought further to say omnipotence means the ability to do all that is logically possible and consistent with his character. Okay? So, everything that is logically possible and consistent with his character, those are the boundaries for divine omnipotence. While doing evil is not inherently self-contradictory, it's nonetheless impossible for God, but that inability, again, does not compromise God's omnipotence. A sinless, perfect being simply cannot sin because it would be a violation of his character, his nature. Now, I'm going to argue in a second that that actually collapses back into the second category, that it's not actually a different perspective at all. But before we do that, it's important to note that there are some Christian philosophers and thinkers who who are not very happy with these refinements of omnipotence. That they say to say that God can do only that which is logically possible is putting a boundary around God. It's painting God into a box. It's limiting God by our rational category. Well, we say that a square circle is impossible, but who are we to say? Maybe God can create a square circle. Why? Because our laws of logic don't apply to God. And so if our laws of logic don't apply to God, God can do that which seems logically impossible to us. So William of Ockham in the 16th century said, no, this is not fair. Aquinas, you can't limit God this way. To say God is omnipotent is to say God can do literally all things, even that which seems logically impossible to us. We are not capable of understanding God in his fullness. His categories may be entirely different than ours, and so God can do even that which is logically impossible. So, this category of thinkers, this is, again, the traditional perspective, right? God's omnipotence means he can do all things. And there's lots of people that I respect and admire as brothers and sisters in Christ that hold that perspective. I think it's mistaken, though. And the reason I think it's mistaken is that the laws of logic, I don't think, are a human invention. I think there's something given by God. And the same with the moral law is not a human invention. Rather, it's something given by God that's a reflection of his character. Right? So, think of the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments we get in Exodus chapter 20. Think of God's moral law that he reveals to us. Okay? Is this something that God makes up that he could have made differently? Could God have said, thou shalt lie, thou shalt murder? Could God have done that? Well, some say, well, yeah, God could have. After all, God made the moral law. He can say anything. I say, no, I don't think God could have because that would have been a violation of his own character. God is good. God is pure. God is holy. God cannot give us a moral law that contradicts his own character. And in the same way, I think the laws of logic are a reflection of God's character, God's nature, not something God invents, not something that we make up, rather something that we discover that's a reflection of who God is. And to say that God is, quote, bound by the laws of logic is simply to say that God is bound by his own character to be who God is. So the laws of logic, I would argue, are a reflection of who God is, not a creation of God nor an invention of man. So, logic, we might say, refers to the standards of thought that derive from the ground of all being. That is, that they derive from God himself. So, Aquinas' position, God can do all that is logically possible, I think is the simplest and best position. It's to say that God can do all things that are logically possible because that's what is consistent with his character. So, again, I think that second and third category kind of collapse into one another. The third, I think, collapses into the second. Because, after all, if God is a divine, if God is a perfect, a holy being, 
then to do something which is unholy would be a contradiction within himself. A holy being cannot do that which is unholy. A perfect being cannot do that which is imperfect. Okay, does that kind of flesh out? Does that kind of make some sense? All right. So, can God create a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it? The question is just mistaken from the get-go. It's like that famous question that I don't know if you've ever heard. Have you stopped beating your wife? You're asking the wrong question. Right. There's no way to answer that question immediately in any kind of helpful way. Right? Have you stopped beating your wife? Yes. Okay, so you beat your wife in the past. Yeah. No. No. Okay. No, I haven't stopped beating my wife. Also, you're still beating her. Right? There's not a, a correct way to answer that question. Can God create a rock so heavy he cannot lift it? We can't just answer that question. We have to go behind that question and address the, the, the thoughts, the presuppositions that lie behind it. Okay, hang on, you're asking the wrong question. Okay? You're asking, can God do that which is logically impossible? The logically impossible is not a real thing. And so, no, God can't do the logically impossible, but that doesn't matter. Okay? Does that help some? Okay, let's move on and look briefly at omniscience or all-knowingness. To say that God is all-knowing, again, is uncontroversial. All Christians would affirm that God knows all things. What does omniscience entail, though? What does it mean? Okay, so again, even non-Christians acknowledge that if God exists, God possesses all knowledge. But for many critics, this notion of omniscience is, again, it's not that it's logically impossible, it's that the entailments of it cannot be accepted. So if God exists, a skeptic would say, God is omniscient, just like God is omnipotent. But if God is omniscient, the skeptic would say, and we would generally agree, then God knows what is going to happen in the future. Okay? So if God knows what is going to happen in the future, that suggests that what happens in the future has to happen. And if what happens in the future has to happen, then it can't not happen. But the things that happen in the future include the things that you and I are going to do. And if you and I have the ability to choose things that we do, to act of our own accord, to choose A or B, this is God knows what we are going to choose, A or B. So, take an easy one. What are you going to have for lunch, right? God would know this. God knows what you're going to have for lunch. That God possessing all knowledge includes God's knowledge of what you're going to eat for lunch. But if God knows what you're going to eat for lunch, then you can't not eat that for lunch. But if you can't not eat that for lunch then you're not free to choose what you're going to eat for lunch. If you're not free to choose what you're going to do in the future, then you're not free. You don't have free will. But, the skeptic says, we seem to have the experience of having freedom. Freedom of choice. Chicken, hamburgers. Liver, onions. Vegetables, chocolate. Chocolate every time. Right? We have the ability to choose. So if we don't have that ability to choose, or if omniscience entails that we don't have that ability to choose, then we're denying something central about our human experience. Furthermore, if we don't have ability to choose, then how can we be blamed or praised for the things that we do? If we don't choose what we do, what sense does it make for blaming me for what we do? After all, I couldn't have done otherwise, right? Usually if I say, Pastor Gilbert, you shouldn't have done that. What am I saying? I'm saying that he had a legitimate choice. He could have chosen to not do that. Right? Otherwise, it makes no sense to tell him he shouldn't have done that. Because he couldn't have not done it. Right? It's like telling an infant, you shouldn't be crying. An infant can't not cry. So it makes no sense to tell a one-month-old baby you shouldn't cry. 
Right? It just doesn't make sense. We can't blame it for doing what it can't help doing. So, again, the problem posed. If God knows what we're going to do tomorrow, how can we choose our actions? There are four traditional ways that Christians have of trying to reconcile this. You notice that philosophers like categories, right? They like options. So, we're going to look at these four options. And again, I'm going to suggest that there's one way that's better than the others of trying to sort this through. And each of these four perspectives has a different understanding of something, Okay, so we'll look, try to sort this through in relatively brief fashion. And then I'll spend a little more time on the one that I think is the best way of sorting it through. So the first is what we call the compatibilist solution, or compatibilism. So compatibilism holds to a different understanding of freedom. The traditional understanding of freedom, which is held by, by virtually everybody in a commonsensical way, but by the dominant stream of philosophy as well throughout human history, the dominant understanding of freedom is the power of contrary choice. So when I go to a buffet, I have legitimate choices that I could actually choose this or I could choose that, and it's up to me what I choose. That's the traditional understanding of freedom, the power of contrary choice. Compatibilism says, no, freedom isn't the power of contrary choice. Rather, freedom is the ability to do that which you most desire to do. So as long as I'm not tied up, I am free to walk in the sanctuary. Okay? And I will walk in the sanctuary if I have the desire to walk in the sanctuary. But if I'm tied up, then I don't have that freedom. So a compatibilist says, freedom is simply the ability to act on that which you most desire to do. But the desires that you have could be formed by forces beyond your control. Okay? So in other words, my desire to walk in the sanctuary could be instilled in me by God. God says, Tawa, walk through the sanctuary, and so I walk through the sanctuary. Okay? My freedom is that unconstrained ability to pursue my greatest desires. My greatest desires, in turn, are actually implanted or placed or formed in some way by God, by societal forces, by other things. Okay? So freedom is the ability to do that which we most desire to do. For the notion of God's omniscience, God knows the future because God determines, either directly or indirectly for the compatibilist, God determines what our greatest desires are. And so if God determines what our greatest desires are, God knows what we will do in the future as long as we have that freedom to act upon those desires. So when I go to that buffet and I'm faced with Brussels sprouts, chocolate fountain, God knows I will choose chocolate fountain because God has given me, forced upon me, that greater desire for chocolate than for Brussels sprouts. Okay? So it's God's fault that I choose the chocolate, not my own fault. Incidentally, this is a great way of rationalizing my food choices. Um, so compatibilism says, yes, God knows the future because God determines the future. But God determining the future is compatible with human freedom. So we are still free even though God determines the future. This is where the word compatibilism comes from. They're saying that freedom and determinism are compatible. They can coexist together. Okay? So we are free, even though God has determined the future. A very different understanding of freedom. Okay? Any quick questions on compatibilism as a perspective? This is a little different, I think, than we generally understand freedom in the future. So we can deal with any quick questions on it. Or we can come back to them. Yes, now please understand, I'm not a compatibilist, okay? So it's not that I'm saying that, uh, but the compatibilist position would be saying basically that, yes. The only, the only argument they would have with you is they would say, no, I'm not saying that you're not free, 
I'm saying that you're not free in that way. The compatibilist says, that's not what freedom is. Freedom is the ability to act upon your greatest desires. Freedom is not the ability to choose A or B. Okay? You think, and I agree with you, so don't get me wrong, okay? You think that freedom means the ability to do either this or this. Compatibilists say, no, that's not what freedom is. Freedom is the ability to act upon your desire to do A. Does that help? Okay. Now, again, it's not my position, but it's important to understand what they say. And it's also important to say, okay, we may entirely disagree with their understanding of freedom, but it does answer the question. Right? If the question is, how can God know the future in a way that doesn't undermine human freedom, this answers that question by redefining freedom, by having just a radically different understanding of what human freedom is. Okay? Now again, I don't go down that road, but there's many that do. And many good people go down this road. Okay? People that you and I would accept as brothers and sisters. There, there may be some here. Is anybody here intuitively a compatibilist? That this would be the perspective you hold? I mean, it's not, you don't have to be afraid to acknowledge it. It's nothing heretical or terrible about this view. I think it's wrong, but that doesn't mean that it's like blasphemously wrong. To say Jesus is not God is not just wrong, it's dangerously wrong, right? To say compatibilism is the answer to this particular puzzle isn't dangerously wrong. I just think it's mistaken. And it might not be mistaken. I'm not perfect. I don't know all things, right? God knows all things, so God knows whether it's mistaken or not. But, okay, sorry, better move on. So compatibilism tries to solve the puzzle by having a different understanding of what freedom is. Open theism is another different understanding of how to resolve this problem. So for the open theist, God does not have foreknowledge of future human actions. Okay? So God possesses all knowledge, right? But think back. So the open theist is building upon kind of what I laid out in the last section. If omnipotence means the ability to do all things that are logically possible, the open theist says omniscience involves the ability to know all things that are logically possible to know. So God knows all things that can be known. But even God can't know that which can't be known. And the open theist argues that what I'm going to have for lunch can't be known. So the future actions of free-willed human beings are not things that can be known. Why? Because they don't exist yet. So the open theist says, the future doesn't exist. Your future choices don't exist yet. And so God can't know what they are. That doesn't limit God's knowledge. God still knows all things that are possible to be known, but these are just things that can't be known. So the open theist accepts the compatibilist argument that divine foreknowledge would imply the fixity of the future, that the future is fixed or determined by God. And the open theist is unwilling to compromise our libertarian freedom, our ability to choose A or B. Okay? The open theist says, yes, I can choose A or B, but if God knows that I'm going to choose A, that implies that I can't not choose A, and so I'm not really free at all. The open theist acknowledges that and says, okay, but the libertarian freedom is more important. I have to have that legitimate choice between A or B. God doesn't restrict that choice. Therefore, God can't know what I'm going to do. So God's omniscience does not include the knowledge of future human free will events. Now, this again is a position that answers the question. Okay? If God knew future free will events, it would undermine human freedom from the open theist perspective. So they resolve the puzzle by saying God doesn't know the future. Now, probably something immediately for many of you 
that leads to mind as a problem with this perspective. What is it? What's wrong with this perspective on an immediate examination? Prophecy. Okay? Biblical prophecy. God saying what will happen. The Bible seems to be full of God not just making educated guesses about the future, but saying this is what shall happen. So if God is saying this is what shall happen, that's implying that God knows the future. So if the Bible presents us with God knowing the future, including the future of some actions that are caused by human free will events, and yet open theism says the future doesn't exist so God can't know it, we have then a problem within the open theist perspective. Now there's a whole lot more to be said on this whole front, but I just want to point out one particular historical example that I think is problematic for an open theist, and that is the cross. Okay? The crucifixion of Christ isn't something that just happens as a happy byproduct of Jesus' life. It's something that is prophesied, both before New Testament times and by Jesus himself, where Jesus says how he is going to die and when he is going to die. And Jesus' crucifixion isn't something that's brought about by forces of nature, right? Like God could obviously predict when the next earthquake is going to happen in Vancouver because God knows all of the physical nature of the universe that he's created. And so God knows all of the forces that are at work. And so God knows when these things are going to happen, right? But Jesus' crucifixion depended upon the actions of a whole lot of different people. Judas had to betray Jesus into the hands of the chief priests. Chief priests had to want to kill Jesus. Pilate had to cave in to their demands for Jesus' crucifixion. All of these free-willed actions had to occur in order for Jesus to die in the way he died when he died. So if God can't know the future, how can God predict accurately Jesus' crucifixion? So I think this poses a big struggle for open theism to try to resolve. So for that reason, I think open theism ends up not being a satisfactory answer to the question of God's omniscience and his knowledge of future events. Uh, but again, it's helpful to acknowledge that it is a response. Okay? It's, it's a response that answers the question, uh, but it answers it in a way that I think is dangerous to the nature of God's revelation in Scripture. A third perspective that we'll look at briefly now, and then I'll turn to in more detail, is what we call atemporalism. And atemporalism simply means existing outside of time. And so this perspective argues that God exists outside of time. So it has a different understanding of God and time. So on atemporalism, God is not a temporal being in the way that you and I are. So we exist in past, present, and future, right? We have a past, we exist in the present, and we anticipate the future. For an atemporal perspective, God is not a created being in the way that we are. God has always existed and God creates time and space. If God creates time and space, God is not bound by time and space. So God exists outside of time and space. If God exists outside of time and space, then God is not temporal. He is atemporal. And because of that, just as God can see all of space at the same moment, so too, the atemporalist argues, God can see all of time at the same moment. So God looks out upon all of what we would call human history, past, present, and future, in an ever-present tense perspective. Okay? So this one becomes more difficult to conceive of rationally, um, but the argument again is that God exists outside of time, and so he sees what I will have for lunch already. It's future to me, but it's already present to God, because God exists outside of the time continuum that I exist within. 
So God already sees what I cannot see. In the same way that God sees what's happening in China right now in a way that I cannot because I'm not there and I don't have video cameras turned on, right? So God sees what's happening there even though I can't, okay? My spatial perception is limited by my particular spatial existence. I can't see what's happening in China. God is not limited by that spatial perspective that I have. God sees what's happening there and what's happening here. In the same way, God sees what's happening 20 years from now and what's happening now at the same time. Okay? That blow, it blows my mind still when I talk about this stuff out loud. But it's a fascinating perspective that we're going to come back to at the end. The fourth perspective is the Molinist perspective. Okay? So Molinism, named after a Jesuit uh, missionary, Louis de, Molone, de Molina. Uh, and this has a different understanding of the future. The future is governed by what Molina calls counterfactuals. So God possesses middle knowledge. And middle knowledge is knowledge of all if-thens. Okay? If A, then B. If C, then D. If E, then F. If F, then G. And if G, then H. Okay? So it's like God knows all of the domino effects that would occur. God knows each one of us. So, so Molinism is going to say, look, God has exhaustive knowledge of all present conditions. Okay? God knows everything that's physically possible to know about the physical universe, and he knows everything that's possible to know about each and every one of us, including God has knowledge of all of our desires. Okay? Now, unlike the compatibilist, the Molinist is not saying that God determines those desires, but he's saying God knows all of those desires. And because of that, the Molinist argues, God knows what you will do in each and every situation that you could possibly be faced with. This is the counterfactual knowledge. So if you're faced with choices between A, B, C, and D at a buffet lunch, you will choose such and such an option. How does God know that? Because God knows everything about you and he knows what you desire most and he knows what you will choose. So God knows all of the possible branches that could go off from the way things are right now. And so because God knows all of those possible branches and he also knows the way that things actually are right now, he knows each and everything that will happen in the future because they're all traced out, as it were, from the way that things are right now. So God's possession of counterfactual knowledge gives God an exhaustive knowledge of the future. So this is distinct from atemporalism is that in that God's knowledge of the future is not because God is outside of time. It's still an anticipatory knowledge, right? The future doesn't exist yet for God, but God can foresee it because he knows each and every possible outcome and what you will choose. Right? But it's also not really the compatibilist solution because it's not that God determines your greatest desires, it's that God knows your desires and he knows what you will choose when you're faced with each and every possible choice. Okay? Now, one of the key uh, questions that, is faced, that Molinists face is what is the grounding of this if-then knowledge? Right? If we have, I've forgotten your name, we've had great conversations, but I forget your name, I'm sorry. Um, but if we have that power of contrary choice, where we could legitimately, at this point in time, choose either this or this, what grounds, what serves as the foundation for God's knowledge that we will do this? So critics of Molinism say, there's nothing that grounds that. If the future doesn't exist yet, God can't know with any kind of certainty what we will, in fact, choose. If we have a legitimate choice between A and B, even given our greatest desires, if we still have a legitimate choice, right, God can't know what we will choose. So, there are struggles that each of the perspectives are presented with. I want to spend a couple of more minutes working out the atemporal perspective, largely because it's the one that I think is the most successful in reconciling this question. So, if God knows the future, 
How can that not jeopardize our freedom? Okay, how can God legitimately know what will happen in a way that preserves human freedom, human accountability, human responsibility? And I want to work through this by working through um, some of the arguments of a 5th century Christian philosopher named Boethius, who almost nobody has ever heard of, but who is absolutely fascinating. And so I want to look at Boethius' argument in a little book called The Consolation of Philosophy. And he works through it in basically five little sections. So we're going to look at this just really quickly together. Try to track with me. I'm sorry I don't have a nice PowerPoint presentation for this, but it's something that it, it's impossible to visualize in my mind anyways. Okay? So first, Boethius notes, uh, sorry, the way Boethius writes is really interesting. He writes a dialogue. Okay? So he doesn't, he's not just trying to write, you know, kind of, this is what you need to learn. Rather, he has an imaginary conversation between himself um, and he is the questioner. Okay? So he's asking the cheeky questions and Lady Wisdom is answering his questions. And Lady Wisdom is really just a stand-in figure for Scripture, for Christ, okay, for the Word of God. And so Boethius is really putting the questions to Christian theology, Christian philosophy. Uh, well, what about? Well, what about? Well, what about? And then through Lady Wisdom, he's responding to those. It's a wonderful little conversation that he pictures. So, first, Boethius notes that um, the sin that we have mars our ability to know things fully. So true freedom would be freedom in Christ, and true freedom is required for true rationality. So he lays this out at the outset. This is kind of following Augustine's faith-seeking understanding, right? I'm not going to be able to have full understanding unless I am in Christ. So I'm seeking to understand by asking these questions of Lady Wisdom to guide me into truth. So Boethius then launches into the complaint. So this is, he says, the question, the attack, the objection, the accusation against Christianity. Granted, God knows what will happen. Open theism doesn't come into being until the 20th century. Okay? I think God knew it was coming, incidentally, but that's okay. Um, so open theism is not on the table in the 5th century. So God knows what's going to happen in the future. This is just accepted by all Christians and by all non-Christians as just a de facto, if God exists, God knows what will happen in the future. So Boethius launches the complaint. If God knows what will happen in the future, we don't have true free choice because what God foreknows must necessarily happen. And if it must necessarily happen, it cannot not happen, and so we can't choose to do otherwise than God knows that we will choose to do. And so, and I quote, and so what happens is that the outcome of a foreseen event cannot be avoided. If something is going to happen in such a way that its outcome is not a definite and necessary thing, how could it happen that its occurrence be foreknown? For true knowledge admits no admixture of falsity. Okay? Knowledge requires truth. So God's foreknowledge requires the truthfulness of the things that are foreknown. Boethius then goes on. So he says, okay, so if God knows the future, the future has to happen, and the future has to happen, I can't choose otherwise than I choose, and so I don't have freedom. But if this is the case, then this foreknowledge makes reward and punishment unjust for the reasons I laid out earlier. If God knows what I'm going to do because God determines what I'm going to do, then why does God blame me for the things that I can't not do? Why does God hold me responsible for it? Furthermore, he says, this would make God the author of sin. Why do I sin in the future? Because God knew I was going to sin in the future. And so because God knew I was going to sin in the future, that means God caused me to sin in the future. So God is the cause of my sin. And if God is the cause of my sin, then God is not good. Fourth, if God knows the future and determines what's going to happen in the future, why do we pray? Boethius says, this makes prayer impotent. 
Why pray about things that are future? Why pray for Aunt Martha's healing? Why pray for God to protect my kids? Why pray for this? Why pray for that? Why pray for anything? If God knows what's going to happen in the future, and what's going to happen in the future is going to happen regardless of what I pray, why bother praying? Is that, how many of you have asked yourself that question? I don't know many Christians who pray who haven't asked that question at some point along the way. Maybe not in a doubtful, skeptical way, right? but we all ask that question. Why do I pray? If God knows what's going to happen in the future and God's going to do what God's going to do, why do I pray? Why do I, why do I pray? That's a question for another day. Wisdom then responds to Boethius. And the first thing that wisdom says is something that I love, right? Because we're 1,500 years after Boethius writes. We've got to keep that in perspective. Okay? He writes in about 491. We're sitting here in 2016. And the first thing wisdom says is, this is an old complaint. 1,500 years ago, Lady Wisdom responds, and the first thing she says is, yeah, people have been talking about this forever. Sometimes, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as the next person, sometimes we think we're the first people to have such and such a question. The first people to have such and such a doubt. Right? Oh, the first people to think of such and such a solution to a problem. No. There's nothing new under the sun. People haven't gotten smarter in the last 1,500 years. Right? We haven't gotten to be better thinkers somehow. We have uncovered new things. Right? It's not that we haven't made new discoveries, new advances, and so on. Right? We can fly to the moon now. We couldn't do that 1,500 years ago. Right? But that doesn't mean we're smarter. It doesn't mean we're better thinkers. Right? And so I just think it's fascinating that already, before the year 500, this was an old discussion and complaint within Christian philosophy. All right, then Lady Wisdom goes on to the important stuff. Human reason, she says, is not the same as divine foreknowledge. Okay? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. You need to keep that in mind. Secondly, Lady Wisdom says, look, future events occur necessarily regardless of whether God knows them or not. To which the first person is, what? Okay, so track with me here. What you're going to have for lunch is going to happen necessarily whether or not God knows what you're going to have for lunch. Okay, that's the claim that Lady Wisdom is making. So, who wants to help me act this out right now? I have a volunteer. We want to act this out. No volunteers? Okay, very good. Okay. God knew you were going to volunteer, incidentally. Okay. Now, just do something very simple. So, hold still. Hold still. Now, what's your name? Bob. Bob? Okay. Now, okay, just notice right now, Bob is standing still, right? Okay? Something's going to happen in the future. Okay. Now, Bob, just walk to the front of the sanctuary. Okay? Perfect. He walks very well, right? Now, notice, when I spoke a couple of moments ago, his walking to the front was not current, not in the past. It wasn't past or present. It was future, okay? It was a future event. It hadn't yet happened. Now, when I asked you to walk to the front, you could have chosen not to, yeah? All right? So he could have said, no, stand right here. He could have walked out the back and out the door, right? He could have left, right? These are things that I think are legitimate options for you to have chosen. I think you think they're legitimate options as well, right? You could choose A or B, right? However, now that he has walked to the front, can it have been any other way then he walked to the front. Does the question make sense? Okay. He has now walked to the front of the sanctuary. Can he 
Can it be the case that he chose not to walk to the front of the sanctuary? No. Why not? Because it has happened. Okay? He has actually done it. That's all that Lady Wisdom is saying here. Okay? Um, now, when you were back there, you hadn't yet acted upon it. You hadn't yet made the choice. You hadn't yet done the thing. It was yet future. However, once it occurs, it is fixed. Right? It occurs. And so now, it cannot be the case that you did not choose to walk to the front of the sanctuary. Before you walked to the front of the sanctuary, you had the choice, right? But after you make the choice and do the thing, you can't not do it. It's like texting, right? Once you send that text, you're really mad at somebody. You send that text and you're like, ooh, I shouldn't have sent that. You can't get it back, right? I don't text. That's part of the reason I don't text. Okay, so once you've done the thing, you can't not do the thing. So Lady Wisdom says what's going to happen in the future is going to happen of necessity, whether God foreknows it or not. Okay, do we follow that now? Does that make some sense? Thank you, Bob. You can, you can have your seat. Or not, as you choose. Um, okay, so what happens in the future happens with necessity, whether or not God knows it. Okay, um, what I'm going to have for lunch is not a necessity before I have it. But once I choose it and eat it, it becomes necessary, right? It's a necessary part of reality that that is what I have chosen to eat. So that's the first thing that Boethius says we need to notice about God's knowledge of the future and our knowledge, okay? Once we know something to have been, it cannot be that it did not happen that way. Incidentally, one of the implications of this argument is that time travel is impossible. And so that's a, a discussion for a whole different day and time, but that's one of the implications of Boethius' argument, okay? Is that if this is the case, right, if once something happens, it becomes necessary, a necessary part of the fabric of reality, then time travel would be a logical impossibility, given this perspective, okay? Now, for some people, that's a reason to not accept this perspective, because they think time travel is not only a possibility, but can become an actuality, and so then, if that's the case, this doesn't work. Does that make sense? This is all fun stuff. This is stuff that keeps me up at night. Yes? Yes. Yeah, very good. And so if that happened, right? So if he started walking to the front, he said, no, why should I do what he says? And changed his mind and started walking back or whatever, right? So he started walking, he changed his mind partway through, and he walked back. Now, again, once he had done that, he can't have not done that. Right? So I could go, let, let's say, have you ever had the case where you go to a restaurant and you're planning to have something there? So you have in mind already, okay, I'm going to KFC, I'm going to have the 20-piece meal all by myself. Right? Okay. I'm going to KFC, this is what I'm going to have. You, you've had that? And you get there and all of a sudden you're like, huh, no, I don't want that 20-piece meal. I want to have a broccoli salad. I don't even know if KFC serves that. But you change your mind and you have something different. Right? Okay, so you went there with one intention, you change your mind, and you choose something else. Once you've changed your mind and acted upon that choice and you've ordered something else, you can't not have changed your mind and done the something else. Right? Okay, so you go to KFC. Let's choose a better restaurant than KFC. I'm sorry. Um, one that I know the menu <laughs> would help. You go to McDonald's. You're going to order a McChicken. Okay? That's my plan. I'm going to McDonald's. I love the McChicken. I'm going to order the McChicken. You get to McDonald's and you find out, oh, they have poutine this month. I'm going to order poutine instead. 
So you've changed your mind, right? I was going to do A, I changed my mind, now I do B, right? Once you make your order, you act upon that choice, you choose B, that becomes a fixed part of reality. Now, your original intention is also fixed, it's necessary, right? You had that intention, and so it's a necessary part of reality that you had that intention. You changed your mind, you act upon that change of mind, you order poutine instead of McChicken, this now becomes... It was future before, but now it becomes present. Once it's acted upon, it becomes past. It becomes a necessary part of reality. You can't not have changed your mind and ordered the poutine instead. Does that follow? I feel like this is complicated stuff. So if you're tracking with me on a Saturday morning, yay for you. Okay, this is a good thing. But if you're not following, don't feel bad because this, this is not easy stuff to track with. Okay. Okay. So, again, what future is necessary whether God knows it or not. Because once it occurs, it's no longer future, but past and cannot be changed. Are we going? Yeah. How does that affect God's? Very good. Okay, so two pieces then to work into that. And so the first is one more piece of groundwork that Lady Wisdom wants to lay. And that is that um, knowledge is not just based upon the thing itself, but upon the abilities of the knower. Okay, so we go on. Imagine with me for a moment that you are entirely blind. Okay, can't see anything at all. Um, the color of my shirt would be, okay, excluding things like human testimony, okay, based on your perception alone, the color of my shirt would be unknown to you, correct? But that doesn't mean that the color of my shirt is unknowable, fair? It would just mean that because of your perceptual limitations, you can't know the color of my shirt, okay? It doesn't mean that Aaron couldn't know the color of my shirt because he doesn't have the same perceptual limitations. So he can know the color of my shirt because his perception is, quote, higher than yours. I'm not making any qualitative things. I'm just saying that he would have a perceptual ability that you do not have. Fair? So the ability of the knower affects what can be known. Right? Now, the color of my shirt, again, is something that can be known if you have the right perceptual ability. What's happening in China right now is something that can be known if you have the right perceptual abilities. If you and I are in the right place or have the right video equipment or whatever. Right? So it's something that can be known. It's just, it can't be known by me because I don't have the right equipment. Okay? Just like the color of my shirt is something that can be known. It just can't be known by you imaginatively because you don't have the right equipment. Fair? If two of you were to start talking spontaneously in Cantonese or in Mandarin, it would be something that can't be known by me because I don't have the right perceptual abilities. I can't, I can't understand Chinese. Right? Okay? But it's not that it's nonsensical language. Okay, so this is the, the other piece of groundwork that Lady Wisdom wants to lay. What can be known is partially determined by the abilities of the knower. And here, again, this is why she wants to work out that God's knowledge cannot be equated with our knowledge. Okay, so you kind of see where it's starting to lead already, right? You're starting to be able to connect the dots. The basis of knowledge is the ability of the knower, not what happens. So as a parent, how many of you are parents? You've had kids of whatever age. Okay, so if you're parents, you know, that there are times that you know what your kids will do and what the consequences are in ways that your kids don't know what they're going to do and what the consequences will be. 
And this is sometimes when they're very young, sometimes even when they're older. You know what they're going to do and what the consequences are going to be, and they don't understand that yet. Why? Because you have more life experience. You have different perceptual ability than they have. Boethius then works through levels of understanding. Touch, vision, reason, and then divine understanding. A man touching parts of an elephant has lower knowledge than a man who can see and touch the whole of the elephant. Right? The person who can see the whole elephant and touch every part of it can know more about the elephant than the person who can only touch the elephant. Furthermore, the higher form of comprehension encompasses the lower form, but not vice versa. Right? So if we go on as blind, he cannot perceive the color of my shirt. He could touch my shirt and get the feel for it and so on, but he could not perceive the color of it. Whereas Aaron, who has both the perceptual ability to feel the shirt and to see the shirt, has, as it were, a higher understanding. It embraces that lower one, but it includes more. Different creatures have different cognitive abilities. And, he says, lower forms tend to limit what higher forms can know. The problem comes when human reason expects divine reason to surrender to human reason or to be like human reason. So if we expect that God's knowledge has to be just like our knowledge, then Lady Wisdom says we run into problems. And here theists and non-theists alike can agree. Right? That if God exists, God is not like us. If God exists, God can and should be expected to have some characteristics and even some abilities that we do not have. I cannot bring universes into existence. Can you? Can God? Okay. So God would have some abilities that we do not have. This, Boethius says, should hold as well for knowledge. Not just spatial knowledge, but now we get to the end of it, also temporal knowledge. So Boethius gets to kind of the, the climax, as it were. God is eternal. That is, he is entire, perfect, and unending. And so in Boethius's words, and I quote, eternity is a possession of life, a possession simultaneously entire and perfect, which has no end. So we are bound by space and time. God is not. Whatever exists in time, Boethius says, proceeds as a present thing from the things that have happened into the things that are going to happen. So, and this is a great quote, it does not yet gain what is tomorrow's, but has already lost what is yesterday's. Okay? So this is our experience of time. We do not yet gain what is tomorrow's, but we've already lost what is yesterday's. Right? We live in a present tense which is constantly moving. The past is behind us, the future is ahead of us. For God, Boethius argues, past, present, and future are all present. So he writes, that which grasps and possesses the entire fullness of a life that has no end at one and the same time, nothing that is to come being absent from it, nothing of what is past having flowed away from it is rightly held to be eternal. So the past is always in God's purview. The present is always in God's purview. What is yet future to us is always within God's purview. So God has an ever-present knowledge. And because of that, God sees, again, what is yet future to us as already present to him. So it's not that God has foreknowledge in the sense that God knows things which to his perception haven't happened yet. It's rather that God's perception includes the future because for God it already is. Okay. So last thought and then we've got to close. I'm sorry. Um, when God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, right? And Moses says, well, what is your name? 
you know, how should I tell people that, that, that what should I tell the Hebrews that your name is? And God's answer is a very perplexing Hebrew phrase. It's basically, I am that I am, or I am that which is, right? It's a present tense revelation. I am that I am. I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? I am. It's I am present tense. Okay? The God who was and is and will be, I am. All, past, present, and future. So God views all things according to this kind of perspective as an eternal present tense. Okay. Um, lots of ground that we have covered, and we've answered a couple of questions, probably not in a fully satisfactory fashion as we've gone through. Um, I'm happy to entertain a few more questions, but I also need to give you a break. So we're going to take 15 minutes. Is that right? But if you have questions, please feel free. I'm going to just hang around up here until we restart at 1030. And uh, so I'm happy to chat with you in between the sessions if you want to. That we're good. Oh, yeah. I'm happy for all of us just to see all the way through. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. God knows all and only truth. Uh, knowledge requires truth, and so for God to know something, that something has to be true. So God can't know something which is not true, so God knows only truth, and God knows all truth. So all that can be known is known by God. And so this, again, is the minimum truth of omniscience. All four of the perspectives that we looked at would agree with this. Okay? God possesses all truth, and God possesses only truth. So God's knowledge is all true, and it is only true. Um, our knowledge is neither Right? We don't know all things that are true. There's lots of things we don't know. Who's going to be, or who is the ruler in Turkey right now? Apparently we don't really know. Um, what's going on in China exactly right now? We don't really know. Um, but God knows all of those truths, and God knows only truths. All of us believe some things that aren't true. I believe some things that aren't true. I don't know what those things are. If I did, I would change them. Um, but God has no mixture of falsity in his belief. Thank you. Yeah, that's, I forgot to get that blank in. Okay, I'm also just happy for all of us to hang around. But yeah, take a break, restroom, drink, whatever needs to happen. Come up and, and chat. I'm happy both ways. <laughs>